everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sarah, and thank you for joining me this week on our journey through the stand. I have something of a cold this week, so I'm going to just jump right into the chapter (laughs) instead of rambling for a little bit. So we're just going to get right into it this week. So a quick recap of last week. Larry and Rita got out of New York City and have ended up camping on a rise overlooking Bennington, Vermont. After Larry takes care of his morning business outside, he re-enters the tent to find at some point during the night, Rita died of a drug overdose. Larry chickens out on burying her and instead leaves her in the tent as he leaves Bennington. That night, while sleeping under a partial bandstand, he hears the footsteps of dusty boot heels. But in the morning, he believes it had all been a dream. This week, in Chapter 42, we are back with Stu Redman. He's left Glenn Bateman's house and is continuing to travel east towards the coast. Glenn opted to stay behind, content with his dog Kojak and painting, but told Stu that if he ever wandered back towards Woodsville, Glenn might take him on his, up on his offer to come along. If you come back this way and renew your invitation to join up, Stu, I'll probably agree. That is the curse of the human race, sociability. What Christ should have said was, Yea, verily, whenever two or three of you are gathered together, some other guy is going to get the living shit knocked out of him. Shall I tell you what sociology teaches us about the human race? I'll give it to you in a nutshell. Show me a man or woman alone, and I'll show you a saint. Give me two, and they'll fall in love. Give me three, and they'll invent the charming thing we call society. Give me four, and they'll build a pyramid. Give me five, and they'll make one an outcast. Give me six, and they'll reinvent prejudice. Give me seven, and in seven years, they'll reinvent warfare. Man may have been made in the image of God, but human society was made in the image of his opposite number, and is always trying to get back home. It's not exactly a cheerful outlook on the human race, but it may be very accurate, no matter how glum it is. Lately, Stu had been thinking a lot about his friends. In his current situation, there's a tendency to downplay or forget the unlovable characteristics of them, and instead focus on the good ones. Poker games, pushing cars out of ditches together, going down to Huntsville for whores, where Joe Bob Brentwood caught the crabs. These were good times for Stu. Maybe not what sophisticated people would consider fun, but that didn't matter to him. He is not a talkative man, but he didn't care much for being alone, and he never had. He wanted to hear other human voices, to get to know someone. And now, on July 4th, while he's on the side of the road, drinking beer and munching on Ritz crackers, Stu hears the sound of oncoming motorcycles. He had his rifle with him, and though he doesn't pick it up or plan on using it, he flicks the safety, just in case the people coming turn out to be like Elder. 
Stu is hoping they'll be more like Glenn, only not so glum about the future. Society will reappear, Bateman had said. Notice I didn't use the word reform. That would have been a ghastly pun. There's precious little reform in the human race. As the motorcycles come into view, Stu sees their Honda 250s, ridden by a boy of about 18 and a girl who is a few years older. He waves his hand and says hi, and they both look so startled to see him that Stu isn't sure if they're even going to stop. But they do. They're very tense in posture, and Stu notices the boy looks like he had a gallon of adrenaline dumped into his blood. Yes, Stu has a rifle, but he's not holding it or pointing it at them, and they're armed as well. Fran thinks Stu is all right, but Harold is immediately suspicious and antagonistic. Harold looks scared green, scared by Stu and his responsibility that he has to Fran. Harold reaches for his pistol, but Fran tells Harold to leave his gun alone. Then she fell silent, and for a moment they all seemed helpless to proceed further, a group of three dots which, when connected, would form a triangle whose exact shape could not yet be foreseen. Later, they all sit in the grass together, and Stu asks where they're headed. Of course, Harold snaps that it's none of his business, and Fran is appalled by Harold's behavior. Stu understands. Harold is just looking out for Fran, of course. Even so, Stu thought, give me three people and they'll form a society. But were these the right two for his one? He liked the girl, but the boy impressed him as a frightened blowhard. And a frightened blowhard could be a very dangerous man under the right circumstances or the wrong ones. Apparently, Harold has taken up smoking in the past day or two, and he lights up a cigarette. Fran explains that they're headed for Stovington, Vermont, to the Plague Center, and she notices the way Stu pales. Stu tells them that they're wasting their time. Harold doesn't think Stu is the best judge of that, but he is. He explains that he came from the CDC. Harold calls him a liar, which quickly angers Stu, but he manages to restrain his temper. Fran tells Harold to shut up so they can hear what Stu has to say. And Harold is very blunt in the fact that he doesn't trust Stu. But that's okay because Stu doesn't trust Harold either, although he doesn't say so out loud. Stu tells them the tale of Campion and Atlanta, how he escaped from Stovington a week ago. Harold doesn't seem to believe any of it, but Fran becomes devastated when Stu confirms that the CDC in Stovington and Atlanta are both useless. She begins to cry, but she thanks Stu because he saved them a long trip for nothing. Harold, however, still doesn't believe it. He thinks Stu is lying. Stu could be a murderer or a rapist. Stu tells Harold that he doesn't believe in rape, but maybe Harold knows something about it that he doesn't. Fran is getting fed up with the bickering, and she tells Harold to stop being so awful. Stu tries to show them the injection marks in his arms from the CDC, but Harold thinks Stu could just be a junkie. Stu rolled his sleeve back down without replying. It was the girl, of course. He had gotten used to the idea of owning her. Well, some girls could be owned and some could not. This one looked like the latter type. She was tall and pretty and very fresh looking. Her dark eyes and hair accentuated a look that could be taken for dewy helplessness. It would be easy to miss that faint line, the I want line, Stu's mother had called it, between her eyebrows that became so pronounced when she was put out. The swift capability of her hands, even the forthright 
way she tossed her hair from her forehead. Harold wants to go on anyway. He just wants to double-check and confirm Stu's story at the CDC. Stu asks if they've seen anyone on their way over, and Fran says no, just a dog. Stu tells them about Glenn and Kojak, but realizes his plan to get to the coast to find more people seems futile if they hadn't seen anyone coming from the coast themselves. Since they're all looking for people, Stu wants to tag along with Fran and Harold. Fran is more than fine with it, but Harold is not. Harold is convinced that Stu only wants one thing. But Fran insists that Stu come with them. This pisses Harold off, and he's just sure Fran was waiting for any excuse to get rid of him. He stomps back to the motorcycle to leave without her, but Stu goes after him. Harold is angry and reaches for his gun again, but Stu very physically but gently stops him. He realizes this is not all about Fran. He wasn't just jealous of the girl. That had been a bad oversimplification on his part. His personal dignity was wrapped up in it, and his new image of himself as the girl's protector. God knew what kind of fuck-up he had been before all of this, with his wad of belly and his pointy-toed boots and his stuck-up way of talking. But underneath the new image was the belief that he was still a fuck-up and always would be. Underneath was the certainty that there was no such thing as a fresh start. He would have reacted the same way to Bateman or to a 12-year-old kid. In any triangle situation, he was going to see himself as the lowest point. Stu, flat out, asks if Harold is sleeping with Fran. And while Harold tells Stu that it's none of his business, his sputtering tells Stu that he isn't. So he tells Harold that Fran is not Harold's. She's her own. And Stu is not looking to try and take her away from Harold. Stu says they both know there's no need for a man to be raping women. If he knows what to do with his hand. Harold thinks that's pretty disgusting, and maybe it is, but it's true. If there's a woman who doesn't want him in bed, then he has a choice, and Stu would pick his hand every time. He supposes Harold does too, if Fran is still with him of her own free will, and Stu is not there to steal Fran away. This seems to get through to Harold. He tells Stu that he loves Fran, but he knows that she doesn't love him. He doesn't want Stu to tell her. Stu simply wants to come along. He won't say a word. When they both return to Fran, Harold apologizes for being an asshole, and Fran is thrilled about Stu coming along. So they all leave, heading in the direction of Stovington. If they can reach Woodsville by dark, Stu thinks Glenn will let them sleep in his house overnight, and then maybe he'll tag along in the morning, a prospect that makes Harold glower. They stop in Twin Mountain for lunch, and they start the slow, cautious business of getting to know one another. Stu finds their main accents funny, and he supposes they find his accent funny, too. All the while, Stu is watching Fran as she speaks. He likes the way she looks and talks. And that was the beginning of his knowing that he did want her after all. So, Stu has left Woodsville, and he is continuing on his journey to the coast. Glenn chose to stay behind with Kojak, but he seemed open to perhaps joining Stu in the future, if Stu ever comes by again and offers the invitation. And that may happen faster than Glenn intended, if Harold and Fran are dead set on checking the CDC in Stovington. And we finally see our main characters meeting, a few of them anyway, Stu, Harold, and Fran. And of course, Harold dislikes Stu from first sight, 
Here's a man who can threaten his role as Fran's so-called protector. He accuses Stu of being a liar, of potentially wanting to murder or rape Fran. Stu handles himself pretty well here. He could have easily lost his temper and fought with Harold. But Stu is a patient, patient person. Harold is just a kid, after all, and Fran is trying to keep the peace. This isn't about marking territory for her like it is for Harold. She just wants to know what Stu knows about the CDC. She just seems happy to see another person. Instinctively, she feels Stu is an okay person and that he won't hurt them. I can understand Harold's wariness and his desire to keep Fran safe, but I feel like it's less about his concern for her safety than it is about his wanting to keep her as his own. And Stu, by just being a man, threatens that. So this chapter is essentially Stu and Harold sizing each other up, but for different reasons. Stu is a threat to Harold's quote-unquote ownership of Fran, and Stu recognizes that Harold could be dangerous in the right or wrong circumstances. Stu is also looking for other survivors, and Harold and Fran are survivors. There is strength in numbers here, so Stu speaks plainly to Harold. He's not there to take Fran. He's not there to assault her. He just wants to tag along, and apparently that's all Harold needed to hear. Not, you know, I'm not dangerous, I won't murder, it's I won't take your girl from you. I don't think things will be easy for the three of them, but there's an understanding there at least which may make the journey a little easier. Despite Stu's story, the three are going to Stovington anyway, and they'll probably stop in Woodsville on the way, which may add another number to their group if Glenn decides to tag along, which he probably will. And who wouldn't want a sociologist along for a journey through a decimated country? <laughs> Glenn is a cynic, of course, but he makes some valid points. And I've always enjoyed reading his little tangent about adding numbers to the human race. Is that a foreshadow to what's to come? Show me three, and they'll invent the charming thing we call society. And Stu thinks of this when he meets Harold and Fran. A reformation of society has begun, or rather, a society has reappeared. Remember, Glenn doesn't want to use the word reform because there's little reform in the human race. So cheerful and so relevant. The problem is, despite Stu's promise to Harold that he's not going to try and take Fran away, he realizes as they talk and get to know one another that he does want her after all. And it doesn't take a genius to recognize this is not going to end well for any of them, especially if he acts on his feelings. You can tell Stu's attraction to Fran just in the way that he's describing her in the chapter, um, noticing the little line between her eyes, the way she brushes her hair away from her forehead, the way she speaks. The attraction was evident from the very beginning, whereas his description and view of Harold is a frightened blowhard. <laughs> so I think that maybe subconsciously there was some desire there, um, but Stu's desire to find more survivors and to be with other people outweighs whatever um, attraction he has to Fran, at least for now. That is the end of chapter 42. And the end of book one, Captain Trips. We did it. 39 weeks, 42 chapters. And we've come so far. 
I want to thank every one of you who has joined me on this journey through the stand. Whether you're a newer listener or have been there since episode one last May, without you guys, the podcast would have no point. So thank you for sticking around. Next up is book two, On the Border. This is the longest book in the entire novel, but things get really interesting from here and the chapters get longer. (laughs) So I predict that these episodes will be stretching into close to an hour in the next book. So I hope that you guys have the patience and the desire to stick around. Just a heads up that I will be taking a week off, um, but I will be back on February 29th. Yay, leap year with chapter 43, where Nick Andros will meet a new survivor himself. If you guys are enjoying this podcast, it would mean so much to me if you would leave me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Um, Thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who has already done so. If you would like to get a hold of me or you just want to talk about the stand or you have any questions, you can send me an email at thecirclecloses at gmail.com. You can also find me on social media at The Circle Opens, or you can check out my blog, thecircleopens.com. So that's it for this week, everybody. M-O-O-N, that spells, see you on February 29th.